Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I'm here with one of my favorite authors, Lori Rader Day. Her books include The Lucky One, Under a Dark Sky, The Day I Died, and more. And she just released her first historical novel, Death at Greenway, set in Agatha Christie's World War II home. And I think you'll enjoy our conversation about her new book and all the challenges of writing a historical novel. Thanks for being with me today, Lori. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So why don't you start by telling us about the book? Sure. So uh, Death at Greenway is based on a little-known fact in history that Agatha Christie's beloved holiday home, Greenway House in Devon, was used to house some war evacuees during World War II. I discovered that little fact when I was reading a nonfiction book about how Agatha Christie works called The Secret Notebooks of Agatha Christie. If you're a super fan, you might be interested in that book as well. And it was just like a little sl- a little throwaway sentence uh, about this having happened. And it, it sort of struck something very deep inside my heart. I just really wanted to read that story. Um, I, one of my favorite movies is Bedknobs and Broomsticks, what a mm-hmm. childhood favorite. And I think there was something there. I imagined Bedknobs and Broomsticks at Agatha Christie's house. And I just, I couldn't <laughs> let it go. Unfortunately for some, and maybe fortunately for me, uh, nobody had written that story. So, um, right. Until I read your book, I had no idea that so many children were evacuated to the countryside. Yeah. Uh, Three million people, mostly children, were evacuated out of the metropolitan areas. Um, there were, I mean, most of them would have been London, but there were other major cities that were evacuated. And then, of course, some of them were evacuated to places which were also bombed. Um, you know, it was, it's a small nation. Um, They were also evacuated overseas. Some went to America, some to Australia, some to Canada. Some would have gone back to their families, but many didn't. So you started being interested in this story of the evacuees, but then the book really became more of a mystery, a murder mystery. And it's also, I understand, your first um, time writing a historical novel. So why don't you talk about the evolution of the idea and then the sort of the new challenges you faced is writing in this new genre? For sure. Um, so my other five books are contemporary mystery novels. Thrillers is what they are sometimes called. And, you know, this story originally, when I when I heard of this, I thought, well, this is a kid's story. This is a children's book. And um, I would love to read it. It doesn't exist. Oh, well, too bad. Somebody else will write it someday. But I didn't actually talk about it. I didn't actually give the idea away because I think, you know, deep in my heart, I really wanted to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got the idea in 2011, but I didn't really even have a chance to think about it for several years. In 2016, I had the chance to talk to my new editor at HarperCollins, and I said, well, I have this idea uh, about Agatha Christie. They have, a, they have a wall with Agatha Christie's face on it made uh, out of her words. And I'm like, oh, cool. yeah. Yeah, I'm into this. Uh and so she's like, okay, talk, you know, tell me about it. And I didn't have anything beyond um, just this little snippet, you know, children at Agatha Christie's house during World War II. And she said, okay, uh, you know, maybe someday, but not, not next. And I, I agreed, of course, not next. Um, but then, you know, uh, I got a chance to go to England. I have a friend there. So I went uh, to visit her in Bristol and then she drove me down to Greenway so we could walk around the house like tourists. Hmm. And I, I think the idea still wasn't mine. I was just sort of looking around 
trying to figure out if the story could be told. But when we went to the house, um, I got the chance to sort of, uh, you know, poke around just, just like a regular tourist. But then we asked a docent standing nearby, you know, is there anything in the house that belonged to the children, anything that belonged to that story? And they, uh, this docent, you know, probably pretty excited that anyone wanted to hear anything, uh, <laughs> ask them any questions, uh, took us upstairs and unlocked a door uh, that was not open to the public. And inside was a cabinet that when you opened the the shell, uh, opened the doors, the shelves had the names of five little girls on them. And those were five of the 10 children who were evacuated to Greenway. They were still, their names were still on this cabinet. And at that point, I don't think anyone could have pried that story out of my hands. I really wanted to do it. <laughs> I think because it, it really brought home that maybe the history wasn't that far off. You know, it has seemed ancient history to me because I don't, I don't write historical novels. I'm not a historian. Uh, you know, there are many reasons why this wasn't the right story uh, for me to write. I'm obviously not British. Um <laughs> <laughs> And so I had a lot of doubts about this story, but once I had seen those names on the shelves, I thought, well, I think I have to try. So I, I went back uh, to America. I think I had another book that I was still writing or another contract I was still finishing out. And then in, um, I think 2018, uh, I sold a, a book and I usually sell, you know, a book that you've written and then a book that you are going to write next, ideally. Mm-hmm. And instead of writing, you know, buying uh, the book I had handed to them and untitled number six, which is what usually happened, they asked what else I had, you know, in mind. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. <laughs> um, but the only thing I really have in mind is just this little paragraph, you know, about m- maybe what this story could be. And so that was my editor saying, it's time. Uh-huh. So they bought the book before I had written anything, before I had done much research at all. And a, 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 an idea that was a someday book became my very next project in, a, in an afternoon, which was wow. really scary. Wow. And I feel like if I were to take that on, I would never emerge from the research phase ever again. So <laughs> talk about how you, how you got into it and then also like how you got out of it. Well, that is uh, definitely true of this. I, every historical panel of authors I've ever, you know, I've ever heard, I, and I used to go to quite a few of them because I was thinking about this story. Maybe someday, they all say there just comes a day when you have researched everything. You're going, you just need to put the research down and start the story. And I thought, well, that's sure, but they like research. <laughs> um, I don't actually like research that much, or I haven't. <laughs> Um, up until this book, my idea of research is sort of writing it the way that I hoped it would be and then finding the perfect person to tell me what I was getting wrong, mm-hmm. the lazy man's uh, version of research. <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, that, you know, it, that won't happen to me, but it absolutely <laughs> did happen to me. And I think part of it was because I had all these doubts about, um, you know, I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have a historian's mindset. I didn't have a deep knowledge of World War II. I didn't know what the story was. I just had the context for the story and I didn't know how I was going to make it work. And I wanted it to be a mystery story. As you mentioned, um, you know, that's, that's what I write. That's what Agatha Christie wrote. It just seemed like it needed to be, you know, a mysterious story, a suspenseful story of some kind. 
And I didn't know how I was going to make that work. But I also wanted to sort of protect every time I came up with a fact that was true about this episode, I wanted to use it. I wanted to use everything I could find. Yeah. And because, uh, you know, at first, very little was available, you know, very little was known. So every time I was researching something, I would find something that hadn't been found before. That's so cool. What, what I was going to ask you is uh, how how do you decide what fictional parts you can put in and what you absolutely feel personally required to put put in that's true? You know, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'd want every every little bit to be as true as possible, but it's fiction, so you are actually allowed to make things up. So how do you right? How do you I'm I'm allowed. I'm allowed. And so many of my friends, when I was having trouble with this project, and I did have lots of trouble with this project would say, you know, basically, why are you being so hard on yourself? This is a, this is a novel. This is fiction. Why don't you just make it what you hoped it should have been? Like the, 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 one of the first facts I could find was in um, Agatha Christie's autobiography. She actually wrote a couple sentences about this episode. And she says that the the group uh, contained 10 children under the age of five, Mm -hmm. Uh, which was very, very disappointing. If I had not seen, you know, those five names on the cupboard already, I think I might have given up on the idea because five children, no, 10 children of the age of five was, it was, that was, that was just too many kids. That's too many kids. (laughs) And it's, uh, they're too young. You know, the story can't be about them, especially if it's a suspense novel. I, you know, what kind of story can you use 10 children under five in? Um, but she also said that it was, uh, it, you know, the chaperones were a Mrs. Arbuthnot and her husband, and then uh, two hospital nurses. So those hospital nurses, having no name attached to them, having nothing um, attached to them at all, became the center of my story. So I thought I can, maybe I can make this work after all. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor, but when we come back, we're going to talk about all the language issues that come up writing a historical novel and and how Laurie dealt with those. So we're back. And first, uh, Laurie wants to talk about all the the stuff and why it was important for her to put it in there. Well, I, you know, the stuff, all these facts I was finding, um, I don't know that this is the way other historical novelists work. Because so little had been written about it, I kind of got it in my head that I needed to write the definitive story of this episode. No one was asking for that necessarily. They were just <laughs> asking for a novel, right? Um, but I decided I, I was going to do my best. I was going to use everything I could find. And when I ran out of fact, then I would have room for fiction. Except because nobody had researched before, suddenly I was finding more and more and more fact. Mm-hmm. So it, it did box me in with the fiction, unfortunately. And just, you know, it, it made it a difficult project on myself, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say the book doesn't feel boxed in. So you did a great job uh, working it all together. <laughs> oh, thank you. So can we talk about writing a historical fiction book and, you know, the language choices you must have had to make to try try to make it sound, you know, from that era, but not so much from that era that it's unrelatable to modern readers. There must have been a really fine line you walked. It was a very, very fine line. Um, I love historical novels to read. I've, I've been a longtime fan of reading them. And the ones I liked were, they had depth to them. I really did like to have the sense that I was in a time and place that I could never know personally. Um, And that's the kind of book I wanted, but that kind of depth really required 
you know, all that research I was doing, but also working around some of um, my limitations as a writer. Uh, for instance, I, I really could not do a first person narration um, of, a, of a character who lived in 1941. Um, a, a first person narration really gets into the head of a character and, and the whole story is seen through those eyes. It doesn't leave a lot of room for, um, you know, keeping secrets from the reader, but it, it also, it just, there's no other character to take some of that load. So unless you can really feel, if you really feel like you can get into the, the head and the psyche of a person who lived a hundred years ago, I, I think it's just, it was a big challenge that I did not take on. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do um, third person and that gave me a, a lot more leeway to have like a narration that could sound um, proper for the time and place. But then I wouldn't try to have to be like a British person, um, whole cloth. <laughs> well, and I noticed things like, um, well, I actually read both, I read the print version and then I also listened to the audiobook. And I noticed in the print version that you had an apostrophe at the beginning of phone, abbreviating it for like telephone. It was apostrophe phone. And, and that, that was on one of the first pages. And it struck me as like, oh, that's old timey. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. It's old timey. Um, so one of the ways that I researched this book was reading uh, books that were written and published during the time. And, and many of them were Agatha Christie books. To be honest, I was researching Agatha Christie and her life and what she was writing because I wasn't sure how much of her I was going to have in the book. But I wanted to be, you know, just steeped in Agatha Christie, if I may use the term. Mm-hmm. Um so I had been reading a lot of her books and and picking up some of these little tiny subtle things that you know gave me that sense of oh this is not it's not throwing me out of the story but it's it's making sure that I'm sort of tied to this time and place and telephone being sort of shortened into phone that's something we do every day but then it would have been sort of a new slangy thing and and the apostrophe had to be there I'm actually surprised to hear that because Agatha Christie doesn't make a very big appearance in the book. She really only has a cameo. So, um, that's, so talk about your decision sort of not to put her personally in the book. Well, she's personally in the book in the prologue, and then she has a couple of small, tiny cameos later on. Um, I At first, I did not want to write from Agatha Christie's perspective at all, and I didn't want to write her into the story. And that seems so silly to me now, but I think it's because <laughs> I, you know, I didn't want to try to get into the mind of Agatha Christie. I love Agatha Christie's work. She's one of my first favorites of adult novels. Um, definitely. She got me into mystery writing and I, you know, she's, she's important to me and I didn't want to try to be her, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I, so I have her in the prologue and the reason why I decided to try it was because in my research, I read her autobiography and also her husband's. And they both talk about the moment that World War II was announced. They were sitting in the kitchen at Greenway. And if they had not been sitting at Greenway when war was announced, I never would have attempted it. I don't think I would have had her in the book at all. Because really, I think for the most part, she was not in the house when the children were there. She rented the house out. And then she went to London to be an apothecary's assistant at the the university hospital there in London and to be near Max, who was doing some war work in London at the time. So she was, she rented the house and she left. 
So I, I don't think I would have attempted it. Mm-hmm. But because Greenway was part of the war story, it became sort of, well, I had to. And then once she was in the story, of course, I wanted her to be a little bit more um, prominent. But the truth was, she wasn't really there. And the story is about the house uh, and the moment where the children are there. And then what happens to the, you know, the area when war uh, does come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the words. So, you know, what were some of the the phrases that you put in to make it sound, you know, from the right time and place? We recently talked about that in the in a Grammar Girl podcast just a week or two ago about um, the errors that authors make of having words out of place. You know, American characters speaking British words and vice versa unintentionally, and how those can get missed in editing. So, you know, were there things that your editors caught that that you had missed, or you know, things that maybe a British friend suggested to you that you put in or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my editors, not so much. I was worried that they would actually have problems with some of the choices I had made to make it sound British because it's, it's an American book, you know, mm-hmm. published in America. <laughs> uh, so I was a little worried that they would, for instance, have an American narrator for the audiobook, but luckily they, they saw, um, you know, that it was not the right way to go. And I, I'm so happy with the audiobook narrator, more work quirk. Um, so some of the things that happened were, um, well, I wrote the book, you know, as best I could. And then I, I had a chance to send it to a couple of beta readers. Um, one of whom is Anne Cleves, uh, a British author who writes the books that are the source for the TV shows, Shetland and Evira. So she's, mm. she's pretty, pretty high up stuff there, but she was so interested in me writing this story that she wanted to read it early. So she loved the voice, called it remarkable, and then picked up a few words that I let slip through. Things like um, purse, and she's like, no, 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 handbag. Mm. Uh, you know, curtains instead of drapes. Uh, I think I have them growing squashes in the garden uh, at the house. And she's like, I don't think squash is the right word. So we, d- we decided on marrows, um, which is zucchinis, basically. Oh, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I learned some things, too. And then I also had Katrina McPherson, uh, another fantastic British writer. She's actually a Scottish writer, uh, read it because, again, she was so interested in the fact that I was attempting this story. She helped me out with things like uh, pavement instead of sidewalk and shop instead of store. And we went round and round on what to call the bathroom. Hmm. And and what to call the, the tub that's inside the bathroom. What we would call it the tub. Uh, hmm. It's actually the bath. Um, even if it's the bath in the bathroom. And then also uh, the loo is what I had, you know, I know, I know British people. I've spent some time in England and she's like, no, that's too low for, for right now. That's not a word that they would be throwing around in polite companies. So lavatory or lav is what we decided on. Oh, that's so interesting. And right, because class is so important in Britain too. Like how did you approach the different um, class words besides Lou and love from your characters. Absolutely. The, um, the two things I was thinking about when it came to Britishness were, uh, the regional accents, which are so critical, uh, in, in British life. And it's so interesting how, uh, British people I have found are really keen on, they can, they can tell the difference so well between where someone is from um, maybe the accents here aren't as different from, uh, you know, region to region within a small distance, but 
they've got it all figured out in England. Um, and also the, you know, the hints in vocabulary having to do with socioeconomic status, vocabulary, but also the sounds of the language. Um, the main character of Death at Greenway is, is Bridie. Um, and early on when they're on the train going to Devon, she notices an accent slip in one of the other characters, someone who is kind of rather posh, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, appears to be maybe putting on airs and graces, which that kind of thing is great for a mystery story to alert the reader that some secrets are being kept here. And Bridie herself is from a poor working class background. She has words like, um, she calls her mother ma'am, M-A-M, instead of mum. Mm-hmm. It's just a tiny little thing, but it hints at uh, maybe an Irish uh, heritage and of working class uh, status. And then some of the um, other characters, especially down in Devon, have some um, some accents that, you know, they're going to a new place. They're no longer in London. So uh, Devon is, uh, it's not that far away from London, really, but um, they have their own vernacular, their own sounds. One of the best things um, I researched was the specific words that were different in South Devon um, than anywhere else in the world. And one of them was, uh, for, instead of saying the word boy, it was buoy, B-U-O-Y. Buoy. And that that one almost got axed by my editor, but I had to just work in the context so people knew what I was doing. And that's I think that's important. I don't love vernacular being sort of um, on the page in that way. I think a lot of it, I what I prefer is to have just a touch here and there mm-hmm. um, so that the reader knows, you know, they're they're in a different place or they're uh, meeting a different character. Right, because there's a debate about whether to use um, it's called I dialect, where you mm-hmm. um, spell the words like they're pronounced instead of how they're normally spelled as a word. And I can definitely see b o y b u o y for boy being confusing unless it's it is in context. Um, did so when you wrote when you when you wrote b u o y for boy, did was the whole sentence then in I dialect or was it just that word? How did you decide which words to represent that way versus spelling them quote like the standard? way. Yeah, I think I really was looking for just a couple of words like that to season the text with and and just working with, you know, maybe uh, the way this the words are in a sentence to make things, you know, characters sound different from each other. Um, in this case, I mostly uh, just got the sound of this woman's um, accent in my head and and, and wrote and buoy was the only bo- the only word that needed to be spelled that way. There was a town though across the river from the house called it spelled Dittisham, D I T T I S H A M, but the locals I learned call it Disham, mm-hmm. Disham. And I think something like that that little touch really puts people. It makes them feel like they're in on something. Oh, okay, that's how the locals do it. You know. Um, so there were a couple of words like that, especially for the people who were, uh, you know, deeply entrenched in this area who had lived there for generations. I thought that was the sort of thing that they, they would say it exactly the way, the way they, they should. Mm-hmm. And how, and how did you think about, uh, you have the two nurses, um, who feature prominently in the book and how did you make their voices different from each other? Oh, sure. Bridie from Gigi. Um, yeah. it's tough when you have two characters who are, about the same age, um, who are, you know, they're both women, they're, they're from the same area-ish. Um, 
I've had a little practice with this for my fifth book, The Lucky One, which is a contemporary um, thriller. I had two women characters and they were so close in age and so close in background. I just, I worried that I wouldn't be able to get their voice different for the, you know, different enough for the reader. So I, I wrote them kind of the same. And then I did an extra edit on the one who was a little more mannered, a little more tight and, and tightened up every thought and line of dialogue so that the other narrator would be a little wild, that she'd be a little looser. Um, I think that was a, a good, I think I cut about 5,000 words out of um, the mm-hmm. one character's half of the book to, to have her feel a little more tense. Um, in this case, Bridie and Gigi aren't that close in age. They're a little far apart. And Gigi's a little more worldly. So she gets to be a little more racy and a little more, um, you know, saying exactly what she thinks, um, even though maybe it's a little uh, inappropriate. And then, and Bridie is, you know, a girl who hasn't had much of a life yet, much younger. And uh, like I said, a little more on the working class side. So just paying attention to the little differences, I think is what works there. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, the book is Death at Greenway, and it's certainly not too late to get as a gift for the favorite book lover on your list. Um, Lori, Lori Raider Day is the author. And Lori, tell people where they can find out more about you and the book. Sure. I'm at Lori Raider Day without the hyphen.com um, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Lori Raider Day. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>